Amen. As you're grabbing a seat, we'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back. And uh, I'll just extend the welcome that Jason gave to all of us who, starting off the year, the first Sunday of the year, um, gathering with God's people, um, listening and looking at God's word, singing in response and worship. What a great way to start the year. I pray that you all had... um, a good uh, holiday season, and celebrated it for all that it's worth, right? Now the goal is just to get the kids' bedtime back in order so that they can go to school um, this week. Uh, I'll say just a special welcome to uh, our friends Bob and Rose Galusha over there. They've been good friends of my family and my mom and dad for a very long time. Drove down from Michigan just to be with us. So um, thank you guys for being here. Y'all been a real blessing to us for a long time. Over the, uh, over the break, I did a lot of reading, um, and I was reading uh, the memoirs of a guy named Dallas Willard. He had kept a journal, and they had put a lot of his thoughts together. Uh, he's published several books that I've read, The Spirit of the Disciplines, uh, Divine Conspiracy, kind of formed my idea of what discipleship really looks like, but just uh, days before he passed away, this is what he wrote to some of the young, younger pastors he was mentoring, and it's really just resonated with my heart. I think I have this on the screen. What matters, what matters is the work of helping people know that God is alive and present and loves them. That this reality that Jesus called the kingdom is among us and available, and that life is precious yet is wasted with terrible ease. That uh, just kind of grabbed my heart and soul, and I just kind of sat with it for a couple weeks, and I think so much of it's true. Uh, I believe it with all of my heart that um, certainly uh, God is alive and present and loves us. Also, that it is possible to live in the kingdom now. God didn't come just to rescue us to go to heaven one day, but he offers what he would call abundant, overflowing life now, life in the kingdom, that Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom, and the kingdom, his kingdom, is available for us to walk in a life of joy and peace and love. And I also agree with Dallas that it is wasted with terrible ease. There are so many things that grab at our heart and our mind, and if we're not careful... We will climb the ladder of the American dream our whole life and only get to the end and realize that our ladder was leaned up against the wrong tree. And I want my life to matter, and I'm sure you do too. I want it to count. I want to live a life of consequence. In Luke 12, Jesus says this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so the question I want to ask this morning is, what does it look like for us to live in the reality of that promise? A life that isn't paralyzed by fear but lives beyond it. A life that is anchored and fully displays what life looks like in the kingdom of God. That people around us begin to get a taste of the kingdom of God because they are interacting with us. A life of love and joy and peace and kindness. The fruits of the Spirit fully present in our lives. 
How do we live that kind of life? How do we live in the reality of that, pro- of that promise that it's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom? Well, I need a way of life that keeps me close to God, that keeps my mind aware of his presence, that keeps my ear tuned into his voice in a way that I receive supernatural power to actually walk in the way of Jesus. I've said before, and I say again, a lot of people think that Christianity is mostly about believing the right things, but it's not. There's a myth that information is what leads to transformation. Again, that's a myth. Information's important, doctrine's important, all those things important, but information alone does not lead to transformation. What leads to transformation is us walking in the presence of the God who made us. And slowly, we are being conformed for those who choose to walk that path Slowly, maybe not as quick as we'd like, but slowly we're being conformed into the presence of God. Over the next six weeks, we're going to start a little series. Think of it as a discipleship pathway or a framework. We're going to learn this way of life together, what it means to really follow the way of Jesus. The early church was often referred to as followers of the way, meaning it was the practice of their lives that stood in such contrast with the watching world because they followed a different way, the way of Jesus. You'll see it as you read through the book of Acts. And the followers of the capital W way, the followers of the way, meaning the way of Jesus. And in the series, we're going to really talk through three different directions. You're familiar with all this stuff, the up, the in, and the out. We're going to give you several tools and practices that followers of Jesus have been using for thousands of years as they were seeking to do just that, to follow the way of Jesus. Nothing here will be extremely clever. Maybe this information might not even be news, new news to you, but these rhythms build the kind of life that makes significant and eternal impact. The life of Jesus was lived up towards his father in with his disciples and close friends, and then out toward the watching and lost world. Again and again, if you read through the Gospels, you're going to see these three directions lived in the life of Jesus. But more than that, this is how he told us to live. I want you to look with me in Mark chapter 12. This is the greatest commandment. And again, this, if you've been in church at all, you've heard this before. Many churches put it on their t-shirts as mission statements, and I think that it's good, although I think we might miss, miss a part of it. The great commandment in chapter 12 and verse 28, the context is many of the teachers of the law, Pharisees, Sadducees, are trying to catch him on something, bait him to say the wrong thing, and this is the question, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Would you pray with me, please? God, I pray that the reading and teaching of your word does not just fill up, just 
fill our ears or fill this gymnasium over the next 20, 30 minutes. The Holy Spirit, you would speak to our hearts. You, the creator of the world, almighty. Yet you choose to walk with us, to speak to us, to live among us. I pray that you would bring conviction and renewal and restoration and encouragement in our hearts as we submit our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So you've heard this passage, love the Lord your God. You'll, you'll be, uh, you even, the, even, even the phrase, he's quoting the Shema out of uh, Deuteronomy. This is a passage that's Every good Israelite, every good Jew would have learned at a young age, this, is, this was their thing, you know. I mean, kids that were two and three years old would have memorized this and could quote this. And this is as Jesus says, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your mind and strength. And then Jesus added a second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you kind of see the directions there, right? You're supposed to love the Lord your God. That's the upward direction. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the outward direction. If you look at this context, Jesus uses the same thing in Luke 12, talking about the good Samaritan, the guy trying to know, well, who exactly is my neighbor? Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan after quoting this. That's the outward direction. Then the inward. You've got to go to John 13. Just quickly, you can thumb over there. I want you to highlight this or mark this because we're going to be coming back to it so much over the next few weeks. John 13, 34. A new commandment. Remember the first two he gave us. These are the greatest commandments. Then in 13, uh, 34, John 13, 30 starts, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one another. So that's where we're headed. What does it mean to walk in the way of Jesus, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves, those who are lost and outside of the Christian community, and then what does it look like to have radical love for each other, radical love in the inward dimension? The goal of this series is not that we finish And everyone's just done with this new piece of knowledge. No, these are practices grounded in the New Testament that we arrange our life around in a coherent way that help us live close to God, to receive power from God as long as we're living. And today's step is the foundation. It's the grounds for everything else we must look at in this series, and I think it's best summed up in the word surrender. I was writing this sermon in a uh, little coffee shop in Natchitoches. I mean, little coffee shop. And there was this family that came in with a three-year-old. And this coffee shop, like many others, sold uh, pastries, etc. And they also sold double-decker cookies. And I was eyeing those as well as this three-year-old. And, uh, you know, Christmas does weird things to three-year-olds. I don't know if you remember, maybe just kids in general, the lack of structure, all the gifts, the grandparents. This kid didn't get his double-decker cookie that he wanted, and everyone in the shop knew it. 
Um, and he was throwing a fit, and his bottom lip was dragging the ground, uh, and his parents weren't giving in. I was so proud of them. I was like, I mean, I had my you know, noise-canceling headphones on, so I didn't hear him, but I was proud of the parents. They were just like, nope, not having it. The grandmother was also with them, like, trying to, like, encourage them, just get him the cookie. At one point, the kid comes over to me, tears flowing, as if I was going to help him. And I was like, hey, buddy, I'm on their side, man. No sympathy for me. I think it's a great picture of how sometimes we act towards God with this unyielding spirit of God, I want what I want. And because of all the good I've done, I deserve this. And yet God says that we can't come to him with pride because he opposes the proud. Anytime we try to come to God with our own agenda, taking things in our own hands, we try to do this in so many ways. We try to take control, especially when it comes to the timing. We don't trust God's timing. We try to even control the outcomes of our life. We try to take things into our own hands, control the outcome. Many times we even try to control God himself. Saying, God, I'm going to do this, and now you owe me that. But that's not the way of Jesus. If anything, we see the way of Jesus so clearly portrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he said, not my will, but yours. It's not the first time we've heard that. We heard that in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This posture of surrender. This posture of yieldedness, this posture of trusting God, no matter what the step of faith he's requiring us to take is, that we would trust him. And this coming year in 2020, you're going to face, just as you did in 2019, many things that you don't understand. And questions you're going to have that you don't have direct, clear answers to. And some of those, as time goes on, you might figure out, and some of them you won't. You'll just have to trust, just as Jesus did in the garden just as Jesus did when he was teaching us to pray, certainly just as Jesus did as he's hanging on the cross in this full picture of surrender. What, is it, what does it mean for us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? I want to look a little closer at that this morning. Jesus, when asked what the greatest commandment is, he doesn't say, hey, buddy, it's to straighten up and live right. What does he say? No, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And why does he say it that way? Why those four dimensions? It's because Jesus knows something about us. He, after all, is the one that created us, knit us together in our mother's womb, the psalmist would say. He's talking about the parts of a person. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and neighbor as yourself. Think of this as a list of the elements of a person. Jesus understood that each one of these elements has to be dealt with in order to love God or to trust God. I like using this word trust even more than love because love in and itself is so like nebulous in our language. Like we love chocolate chip cookies. And a lot of them, any cookies really, I shouldn't have said chocolate chip. I, I love all cookies, right? 
But to say we love cookies and love God in the same breath just seems like it doesn't equate. I like the word trust, that we would trust the Lord with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and our strength. To be honest, you could try as you leave here today to do more of this, to love and trust God more. But you can't do it by sheer will or discipline. And I think this is one of the great errors of the church today is that we seem to like uh, dissect this into four ways and we want to pick the way that we want to love God. Like I want to love God with all of my mind. As a matter of fact, the tradition that I grew up in, we were all about loving God with our mind. Really, the Christianity, the Christian movement in the West and America was kind of started with this. When they started Sunday school and we're going to learn more. We want to love God more with our minds. And I go to seminary and spent four years in seminary learning to love God with my mind, learning the biblical languages, learning how they're put together and how to interpret the original languages, loving God with our minds. And I'm not dissing that. I'm so thankful for the education. But I never learned how to care for people there. I never learned how to pursue the presence of God. I never learned what intercessory prayer looked like. But thankfully, God's not done with me yet. And my education, my experience, my walking with God doesn't end at the end of my formal education, right? God is still teaching me and working these things in me. The point is many of us have learned to love God in one way with our mind or with our hearts. That's why anytime we're together with other believers, right, in my tradition, if you're going to get together with other believers, we need to have a Bible study. That's all about loving God with our minds. We've got to just get out the word. And I, again, I don't think I'm dismissing that. But when's the last time we got together and said, hey, you know what, let's just pray together. Let's just really pray and let's, let's pursue the heart and face of God together. Because most of us are pretty good about loving God with our minds. Again, nothing wrong with that. It's amazing. But if we're not careful, we're going to miss out on the heart and soul and even loving him with our strength. What does it mean to love God with our hearts? To love God with our hearts is to love God with our will or our, our spirit, small s spirit. Like the essence of, of us. It's our source of creativity. It's the power that we have to Um, create and originate, as one writer put it, it's the executive center of the self. If you want to get a hold of what's going on in your life, you go to the heart. You ask people, what's going on in your heart? Jesus says we must love God with our heart. To love God with all of our heart is to have our will set on what's best for him above everything else. God's first instructions to the family would be that they would write God's word on their hearts. The psalmist says that he would hide God's word in his heart. To love God with our heart is to surrender our will to God or to allow God to conform our hearts and our wills to his. So then as we live life empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, our heart is aligned with his heart. Our will is set on his will. To see his name and renown known amongst the nations and in our networks, and in our neighborhoods, for his glory to be known. That's what our will, that's what our heart is set on. 
What about our soul? What does it mean to love God with our soul? We not only love God with all of our heart, but with all of our soul. And our devotion to God, our soul, is responsible for the highest spiritual exercises. It's the seed of our emotional activity. Matthew 26, it says, Christ's obedience was nowhere more tested than in the garden when he says, my, uh, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. The soul expresses the sorrow and joy that inevitably accompany a life of faith. You're familiar probably with Psalms 23 where the psalmist says, He restores my soul. Or Psalms 42, I think I have this one on the screen. As the deer pants for the flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where's your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And then David talks to his soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in such turmoil? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The soul. Without wanting to press the distinction too far, it would seem that the heart relates to the will and the soul to our emotional center. Think about what engages your emotion and affection. You'll be getting closer to understanding the soul. Of course, we don't have time to unpack all of this. In preparation for this very message, I read two books on the soul, and I'm more confused now than I was before I read the books. Our heart, our soul, our mind. It is strange that the Lord says that we're to love God with all of our minds. We don't usually speak in love in terms of intellectual activity. In fact, most of our understanding of love And the secular culture is described in very passive ways. We don't say that we jumped in love. We say we what in love? We fall in love. As if something is just happening to us. Some accidental thing. We tripped over something and fell in love. Nothing can be in the heart that's not first in the mind. It's impossible to have an experience of God directly where we bypass the mind. It can't happen. We might increase an emotion or entertainment or excitement, but we're not going to increase the love of God because we can't love what we don't know. A mindless Christianity is no Christianity at all. If we want to love God more, we have to know him more deeply. And the more we search the scriptures and the Holy Spirit brings it to life and we focus our mind's attention on who God is, And what he does, the more we understand just a tiny little bit more of who he is. And our love grows for him. Our souls break out in a little bit hotter flame for him. Our minds are being renewed in the process of knowing him, which leads to a greater desire to honor him. The more we understand God with our minds, the more we love him with our minds, the more our hearts and our soul are engaged 
ultimately with the response of worship. We've got to love God with our minds. Scripture says our minds are to be renewed. In this fallen state, plagued by sin, our mind is warped. And instead of being created as God did in the garden to walk with him and enjoy fellowship with him, when sin entered the world, it distorted all of these things. It distorted our mind. Even now, we want to fill our minds, maybe unintentionally, but most of our minds are filled with most more useless knowledge than helpful knowledge. With our hearts, Proverbs says you should guard your heart, right? For it's the wellspring of life, and yet most of us would give our heart to anything, or after being hurt, we will cut it off and give it to nothing. Or our souls. What about strength? How do we love God with our strength or our might? Found this pretty interesting. The word translated might here in Deuteronomy 6, which Jesus is quoting in Mark 12 in the Shema, usually functions as the adverb very over 300 times in the Old Testament. So the word usually means very. What does it mean to love the Lord our God with all of our veryness? I know that's not a word, but preachers make up words sometimes because they don't, they don't translate very well. What does it mean to love the Lord our God with all of our veryness, right? To get a full picture, we've got to look at the Greek. And the Greek translation of this passage, of this word, strength, is the word power. The Aramaic translation is wealth. And I think both of these actually point in the same direction. For the strength of a person is not simply who he is and what he can do with his muscles, right? But what he has at his disposal. This means that the call to love God with not only our physical strength, but with everything we have available for honoring God, which would include our spouse and our children and our house or dorm room or pets or our Clothes, our tools, cell phones, movies, music, computers, most importantly, our time. Loving God with everything at our disposal. Not just about trying to love God more. Like you trying to train your son to love vegetables. So last week I took Hudson and the crew out um, to my favorite breakfast diner. And he wanted some oatmeal. He ordered this big old bowl of oatmeal. And they don't make it like mom does at home. You know, there's a little slimy look. You know, you know, oatmeal gets it's been sitting in the pot, and so he ordered this thing and didn't take a bite of it. And you know, I'm like, hey, I paid three twenty-five for that bowl of oatmeal, son. You're gonna take a couple bites. I said, Hudson, you eat two bites of that, and then you can eat the French toast, right? And being an obedient son, he <laughs> he took that spoon and put his mouth on it, and then almost threw up all over the table. He'll. Hey, he wasn't kidding either. He was not joking. It was like the real deal. I was like, okay, bud, you don't have to eat it. Sorry, sorry, my, my bad on that. But the point is, we're not, this is not trying to like uh, get someone to, to eat food they shouldn't eat, right? So you know it's going to be good for them. We can leave here and try harder to love God with our strength, yet fall so far short because it's not just about trying Loving God, trusting God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength comes from being with him. 
we got to be with them. This is what this direction of up is. What does it look like to walk with God? Not just on a daily basis, but on a moment-by-moment basis. If you haven't noticed, the whole narrative arc of the Bible is about God being with us, relentlessly pursuing us. Adam and Eve hid behind the trees. And what did God say when he came in there? Hey, where, where are you? Not that God didn't know where they were. What he was asking is, where are you in relation to me? All God ever wanted to do was to be with them, to be with you, to be with me. Remember the biblical character Enoch, what does it say of Enoch, that he walked with God? Scripture tells us that Noah walked with God, and that God was with Abraham, and his son Isaac, and other son Ishmael, and God was even with Jacob, the manipulator and deceiver, then the whole tribe, the nation of Israel. As you read through this narrative arc throughout the Old Testament, you see that God was with Joseph, and Here's where with God starts to get interesting. Joseph ran into a really hard stretch in his life. And we learned, it says over and over in Scripture, the Lord was with Joseph in slavery and then in prison for years and years. In other words, God's not just in the garden anymore. He shows up in the most painful and difficult places. And this is good news for some of us in this room. Then we see God was with Moses and Gideon and Samuel and Ruth and David and So many others until God literally comes to earth. We're told, again, we look at this at Christmas, that he's going to be Emmanuel, which means God with us, God with. Now in Jesus, we get a little glimpse of what it looks like to be with God. What the with God life looks like. Not just that, Jesus makes a staggering claim in John 15. You're familiar with it. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I should write that phrase on a note card and stick it everywhere I go. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Because my old flesh just thinks I spend a little time with God and get excited about it. And then I just go on the rest of my day if I'm not careful trying to do everything in my own flesh. I need God just to remind me once again, Luke, apart from me... You can do nothing. That's pretty insulting, isn't it? Like, without him and his constant presence with us, not that we can do weak things, we literally can do nothing. Instead, we are to make sure that we are with God. I am the vine, you're the branch. Bearing fruit means that we'll do wonderful things in our lives for God and his kingdom. But I love this, but we really don't have to try all that hard to do them. Jesus would later say, hey, just seek first the kingdom of God. All these other things will take care of themselves. As if if we point our life in the right direction and we begin to pursue the heart of God with a posture of surrender, then God will take care of all the other things. So our goal in 2020 should be to make sure personally that we are with God. That's what it means to abide in the vine, to live intimately with Jesus from one moment to the next. And if you don't do that, Jesus says, not much is going to come of your life. It's kind of like he invites his followers into an experiment because they're just very ordinary people. 
How much can an ordinary person do in this life, on this earth, with God in ordinary moments? Oh, just look at the life of these disciples as Jesus left. And he said, I'm going to send you a helper. I want you to go and pray and the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And when that happens, literally, these faithless disciples who didn't even muster enough courage to be at the cross except for John were able to literally turn the world upside down. Listen to this from John Ortberg. I like this. It's a long quote. I think I just put the last uh, phrase on the screen. Over the recent centuries, every once in a while, a follower of Jesus gets a vision for this kind of intimate life with God. Centuries ago, a name named Nicholas Herman, who was an uneducated household servant from a poor family, got converted to the Christian faith by looking at a tree. True story. It was winter and the tree was barren, but it occurred to Nicholas that the tree would grow leaves again in the spring. This produced in him a deep sense of God's care and power. It struck him that if God does that for a tree, he would surely do it for a person. So this young man enters into this monastic community and he spent his life in the kitchen as a cook and a dishwasher. All the while, privately devoting his life to being with God. Today we know him as Brother Lawrence. When he died, some friends gathered some of his letters together and turned them into a book. The book is called Practicing the Presence of God. It was written in the 17th century and is now thought to be the most widely read book in the history of the human race other than the Bible. This from an uneducated dishwasher who got saved by looking at a tree. This is what Ordberg wraps this thought up with. When the soul is with God, it doesn't matter if you're a dishwasher or a president. The soul thrives not through our accomplishments, but through simply being in God's presence. So how do we, people living in, just ordinary people living in a world of technology and economic challenges and moral debates and the political climate and rapidly changing beliefs, how do you and I find a Jesus way to live? How do we discover what it's like to be with God, that with God kind of life that we saw in the disciples or in the church in Acts chapter 2 or even in Brother Lawrence or, or those that have gone on before us. Again, while there are no magic formulas for being with God, it certainly requires the right posture. I think the words that I prayed as I prayed just kept coming back to me is this idea of posture of surrender and that of pursuit. Now let me warn you before we get to some application, just a few helpful ways for you to cultivate this kind of life. There's two things that will derail your pursuit of being with God. The first is sin. Sin grieves the heart of God. It quenches the Spirit's work in us. And it leads back to patterns of the old life. Romans says when we allow sin to come in our life, it brings darkness with it. We can't see clearly. We don't know what way is up and down. We're disoriented. For most of you, I know this is obvious. That's why a life of repentance is so necessary. Can I be honest with you? There's not a day that goes by in my life where I don't have to repent. As I spend time with God, and to be honest, 
The more I walk with God, the more I repent. The more I see motives of my heart that I used to think are good and pat myself on the back for, now when I get underneath that in the very depths of my heart, I didn't do that for God. I did that for the applause of people or that some people would think that I'm more holy than I really am or I did it so that I could try to strong arm God into doing something for me. I got it all wrong. And the more I spend with God, he doesn't, I feel no condemnation from him, but I do when I'm with him, it exposes my sin Just as Isaiah did right at the beginning of Isaiah 6. He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, living amongst the people of unclean lips. Sin grieves the heart of God. Christians, if you think you can walk with God without a life of repentance, you're mistaken. The second thing that maybe is not so obvious that keeps us from living a life with God, this moment by moment abiding with Jesus, is a word that I think the best word for it is hurry. Not busy, I think it's hurry. You can't pursue anything deeply when you're in a hurry. I can't try to connect to the heart of my wife by saying, hey, babe, I got five minutes. What's going on in your soul? You know, what? Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. It really isn't, I don't think, blatant sin. I think there's some underlying sin there, but I think it's more hurry than anything else. There's a difference between being busy and being hurried. Busy is a condition of the body having many things to do. I have to be in this place, in this place. You see in the life of Jesus, he was busy. But he was never hurried. He always had time to stop. He was always motivated to get up early to go pursue the heart of God. He would literally stop ministry so that he could go reconnect to the heart of his father. He was never hurried. Hurry is the condition of the soul when I'm so preoccupied in my mind and in my emotions that I cannot be fully present to God or anyone else for that matter. Can I just admit that I'm guilty of being a hurried person and I'm really trying to slow down? I got two gifts from friends of mine over the Christmas break, and both were about hurry, like they're trying to tell me something. Listen, friends, God wants to make every moment of my life and your life glorious in his presence. This is the core of the with God kind of life. It's not that he wants just to be with us, just for friendship, but he desires to make our lives glorious. And that's not a word we use often, But it's a great word when we think of the effect of what being with God can do to our souls. It means basically that we want to fill our souls with beauty and splendor and wonder and magnificence. It's what makes people say when they've been with you, you know what, there's something just so different about her. So different about him. It's what many said about the disciples Man, they could tell that they had been, literally been with Jesus. 
And this is not something reserved for just the saints or the super apostles or the super spiritual people. God desires this for all of us. That's the whole foundation of the Christian life is our pursuit of God's heart for him to fill us so completely with his presence that the brilliance of his love shines through us on a moment-by-moment basis. Here are a few quick points of application. I know I'm out of time. One, you've got to cultivate this posture of surrender. I would encourage you to do this. Make sure your knees hit the ground before your feet hit the floor. Make sure your knees hit the ground before your feet hit the floor. And that doesn't mean you literally have to get on your knees, but I do believe that there is a correlation between your physical posture and the posture of your heart. That's why it says of some in the Old Testament as they were seeking the presence of God would lay prostrate down on the face down on the ground. It's like you can't get any lower than this. I think you should start with a prayer of surrender. Every day to God's gracious lordship. It might sound something like this. God, I want to surrender my life to you today. Would you help me love you, to trust you with my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength, my, my veriness? Can I, can I trust you with everything that I am today? Should I, could you help me love you? And when, when I walk off that path, would you, as you do so kindly, lead me to repentance? Make sure your knees hit the ground before your feet hit the floor. Second, I think you should read God's word to hear from God. Not just to finish the reading plan. A lot of us take those reading plans and we, be, we become very good Pharisees. I am up with the reading plan. No one else is reading, I don't think. I think I'm the only one. I read today. Listen, the reading plans are good and you need to discipline yourselves to get in the rhythm of reading God's word, but we don't read God's word just to read it. We read it to hear from God. When God really has your heart, you don't have to force yourself to get in the word. Sometimes the plan just kind of goes out the window because you're communing with God. We listen for the purpose of hearing his voice, and he's certainly still speaking. Now, I hear men tell me all the time, I don't disciple very many ladies, but the men, when we start talking about this, they say, hey, listen, I'm not a good reader. And I say, that's not an excuse. Listen to it. Sing it. Pray it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Listen, I hate talking on the phone. If you know me very well, and I've shared this before, if you know me very well, I've hung up on you. Not because not I'm, I'm mad at you. It's just I believe that talking on the phone is to convey information. It's like a walkie-talkie. Hey, are you going to be here at 7? Yes. That's it. And then, you know, you want to have pleasantries. Well, I hope you have a good day. Well, I hope you have a good day. And, you know, I mean those things from my heart. I do hope you have a good day. I do not mean to hang up on you. My wife is really working with me to try not to do that. So I try to pause for one extra second. And if you don't say anything else that second, gone. 
And Ashley says, well, they may, may have had more that they wanted to talk about. And I said, well, they can call me back. Second round. I've always hated talking on the phone. That was until I met Ashley. And this was before cell phones. So we had the portable phone. My portable phone had three hours of battery. At three hours. And almost nightly it would go dead when I started dating Ashley because I would talk to her on the phone. I just wanted, I wanted to be with her. I wanted to hear from her. I wanted to know about her day and what she was thinking and what she was fearful of and how I could pray for her. We laughed about things together. That's, you remember that phase in your relationship? I hope you all had one of those. Hope, hope you can experience it again. Um, I'd love to experience it again just without the talking on the phone. We'll just, <laughs> let's meet up somewhere. Listen, when you fall deeper and deeper in love with God and who he is, you don't make up all the excuses about, hey, I'm not a reader. No, no, no. You just haven't found what it means to be in a relationship with God. What it means to really walk with him. To listen for his voice. To wake up with your soul aching, as it even says in Psalms 42. My soul longs for you. Finally, the third little point, make sure your knees hit the ground before your feet hit the floor, that you would read God's word to hear from God, and then finally, that you would be resolved to do what he says. Just to take a step of obedience. Listen, Jason's going to talk on this next week, this, uh, this rhythm of listening and obeying, and he'll probably draw some charts for you, and it'll, it really will be helpful. The stuff that he's going to teach next week if he's going to teach what I think he's going to teach, is going to be really helpful for you. It's really helped me. It's really helped create a culture um, in our discipleship framework of listening and responding to God. But if we're honest, a surrendered heart is one that listens and obeys. Even when God asks us to do stuff that makes no sense. He sees the disciples fishing. They were fishermen. And he says, hey, why don't you cast the net on the other side? That had to sound like the dumbest thing that they had ever heard. They had literally fished all night and they were fishermen. And what happens? But they pull it in. This net full of fish. Can you believe their astonishment? And then Jesus does it again with them when he's restoring Peter. You remember that at the very end? Christ had died and Peter had denied him. Jesus shows back up on the beach and he calls out to him one more time. Hey, why don't you throw your net on the other side? Dallas Willard says it this way. You've heard this quote. Perhaps we do not hear the voice of God because we do not expect to hear it. Then again, perhaps we do not expect it because we know that we fully intend to run our lives on our own and have never seriously considered anything else. Listen, God doesn't continue to speak to people who are resolute in their hearts not to follow what he says. You know who he speaks to? People who have a life of pursuit and surrender. 
Let me pray for us before we take communion. God, thank you for your word. Lord, this call to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength just seems so overwhelming, so impossible. And yet you tell us in your word that it's you that works in us that we would will and do what you've called us to do. So I pray for us as we start this year of 2020 that we would start it out with this heart resolved to pursue you, to listen to you, to abide with you in a moment-by-moment basis that you would speak to us when we're at our desk and at the water cooler and over lunch and with our families, when we're taking prayer walks, would you bring to mind people and even phrases that you would like us to pray for those people? Would you guide us to, with such focus and diligence that we could partner with you? Lord, if we're really honest, we should probably all repent of living such a hurried life We don't have time for you to speak. We don't have time to hear you, to listen to you. Many of us have such a unyielded heart that we wouldn't do what you ask us to do anyway. Lord, I I pray we spend some time this morning repenting of those things. We would walk out of here again resolved to pursue your heart with a posture of surrender. Lord, for those in this room, I know there are probably several who don't really know you. They don't know what it's like to be part of your family. They've never trusted you and been saved by, saved by grace through faith. I pray they would take a step across the line of faith today. Others, God, would you speak to us about what we need to give up? Things in our life that are crowding out your voice. Good things, they just, they're just too many of them. And we don't have, we, we live hurried because of it. Would you speak to us about that? Maybe you'd speak to some in here about what we need to add into our lives. Maybe accountability or mentorship or discipleship. Maybe it's just more regular meetings with people that we know walk with God. And we just want to make time to have coffee with them this coming year more and more. Lord, as we prepare our hearts to take communion, would you, in a supernatural way, would you remind us in the very depths of our hearts that you are for us and that you love us and you've invited us to be part of your family? And then would we leave here extending your kingdom? It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone, other members of the prayer team. Our communion here, and you're in no hurry. Take as much time as you need where you're at. And you don't have to be a member here to participate in communion, but Scripture says you do have to be part of God's family. Desiring to live in obedience to what he's calling you to. So here we just take the bread and we dip it into the cup and we partake. So you come and you're ready. Again, many will be in the back to pray. Feel no rush. Take as much time as you need to pray where you're at. And then we'll all sing together in a moment.